great band they were. Sexual Canyon must have been like a jazz saxophonist from the 50s. <laughs> must have been. Um, so this is, I think this is the fifth uh, Kino Kingdom. And uh, this, for me, this is almost like a, the lost episode because I had a night where, what's that? What's that stuff you pour into your mouth and it makes you forget things? Oh, that's uh, to brown stuff, isn't it? What's it called again? It's brown sauce. That's ah, it. yeah, that's it. Yes. Daddy's. No, uh, yeah, I, I had a night where I watched three films um, whilst I was on Grandad's cough medicine, and I forgot. And I, the three films I forgot, um, they're unforgettable somehow. So uh, this is me just recapturing. I've got eight films here. So the ones I'm going to be, the ones I originally forgot were Hell Comes to Frogtown, Strip to Kill and Color of Night. And then on top of that, the films I've got that I've watched in the last week are VFW, Lord of Illusions, Lionheart, The Last Witch Hunter, and I'm really glad I managed to squeeze in last night, uh, Black Butterfly. <laughs> that sounds like it should be a black exploitation film with uh, Pam Greer, but I bet it well, isn't. No, it's, it's it's similar to that. It's like a Stranger Danger film with Antonio Banderas and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers with the most startling hair I've encountered in a while. Um, I thought there was like something to do with his character, but no, you've got his IMDb, and that's the picture he's using. <laughs> it's like someone's put a frightened bush on the top of his head. Jeez. It's amazing. It's it's um, it's kind amazing. of like if you imagine um, Christian Slater in cuffs with the sides shaved. Christian Slater in cuffs. He has like oh, it's like a tsunami for hair. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like a tidal wave of hair in that film. It's astonishing, and they keep on referencing it. People just keep on looking at his head and saying, "Bloody hell, that hair! <laughs> That's hair on your head, Christian." Uh, it was, um, it was a simple script. <laughs> <laughs> it's just people commenting on it there. Um, I have, I think I have eight as well. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, so uh, it's got a slightly awkward setup on my computer at the moment because I've, I've like run out of, um, of USB slots. So I've got things plugged in everywhere. It's ridiculous. It's like, it's like a scene out of a cyberpunk film. But... Um, yeah, so I've got I've got eight. I've got uh, The Five Bloods. Um, I've got Savage Streets. I've got Lionheart. We can share that one. Um, yeah. I've got Gringo. I've got Death Wish 2018. Um, I've got <sighs> Everly. Yeah, I didn't. Somewhere. Is that about the Everly Brothers? <laughs> I wish it was about the Everly Brothers. I genuinely didn't know. I just assumed that was what it was about. It is so. It's the furthest thing from a film about the Everly Brothers, I think. Um, it's a film Anac about the Pointer Sisters. <laughs> um, I've got Anaconda. And I've got one which I just slipped in this afternoon, uh, The Colony. So there we are. That's the one with um, Lawrence Fishburne, isn't it? And Bill Paxton, come on. My mistake. Let's see where's the colony. <laughs> so, right then, so how do you want to... Um, should we have a virtual contest? And you won, so you get to go first. Well, I'm going to... In that case, I'm going to choose our joint one and say Lionheart, because that's something we can enjoy together, isn't it? Yeah, and it is true that being together is better than being apart, but thinking of each other being together. Mm -hmm. So that's quite nice. 
So Lionheart, also known as Absent Without Leave or AWOL, is a film that we are, are, are very familiar with. Yes, it's a film that I watched a lot as a kid and I really liked it and I, I wasn't sure why. I wasn't sure it would hold up, so I watched it uh, like last year and it did. So we watched it again together <laughs> recently. Um, and um, yeah, so it's uh, it's a Van Damme film, Jean-Claude Van Damme film from, nine, I want to say 1990 or... I think, yeah, I think it's 1990. Um, he made it after, I guess, Kickboxer would have been his previous one for that. When was Cyborg? Was eight, right? Oh, maybe, Cyborg. yeah. Might be, he might have just slipped in Cyborg in between there somewhere. Yeah. Um, I've got to say, that if, if Cyborg is 89, then the difference in quality in those films and his acting as well is astonishing. Well, Cyborg is Albert Pune, isn't it? Of course it is. <laughs> He's, uh, see, people talk yeah. about Yui Ball, they need to be talking about old Albert. Yeah, I'm just genuinely. Well, that's a whole other <laughs> I'm just, issue. I, so, yeah, it's 1989. So the Cyborg, then Lionheart, and then, uh, well, he did it, it in 92 then was Universal Soldier, which was it's probably his biggest box, off, box office film. Yeah, uh, I think this did okay. Um, uh, it's it's him reuniting with Sheldon Lettich of Kickboxer <laughs> fame. Um, but uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme co-wrote this as well, Lionheart. And it's... Um, it's so it's, it's a well-made and unusually earnest martial arts movie. Um, it's it's rather it's quite sentimental. Um, yeah. But the fight scenes are really good, and some of the performances are really really good. And in fact, John Claude's probably the weakest, and he's still pretty good compared with like Don the Dragon Wilson or someone. So, yeah, okay. pretty solid in that regard. Well, that was one of the things we said about it was that John Claude can kind can act. To, to an yeah. extent so when there are these when it does delve into, away from the sort of martial arts and there's not too much fighting in it really this is no but they're, they're pretty good yeah there's a yeah there's a nice little montage in the middle which is all goes a bit like blood sport where he's fighting different styles of fighters and stuff but the final battle's really good and genuinely quite like uh kind of uh, it gives you a feeling of quite elevation sort of thing um i like what i like about this movie is that Jean-Claude Van Damme is he's on a noble mission he's not kind of driven by money and he's not driven by revenge as such he's basically trying to rescue his sister-in-law from poverty really because she's completely screwed in terms of money and stuff because her husband his brother got into massive financial difficulty so um yeah so he escapes the foreign legion or the french legion sorry and um and basically He's being chased by the uh, by the Legion at the same time as taking part in these street fights to earn money to basically get her back on her feet. Um, so, yeah, it's quite a nice storyline. And, um, yeah, and I think... I, I wonder if that's why the film kind of holds up in a way is because it's it's not nasty at its core. It's quite, um, yeah, there are some key key scenes, (laughs) not key scenes, but something we picked up on. There was three things. One is that, um, that the fight scenes are well choreographed. So you can actually see what's happening because I think it's a revelation really, isn't it? Yeah. Chris, Chris pointed out that he helped choreograph them. So it's obviously they, it's kind of shot from like a mid distance. You can see what's going on and it, it, it kind of, it's not these like quick snappy cuts. It just, lets these very capable men have these very capable fights and it's, and it's yeah. just well shot and also although it's sentimental it's like you say that there's no nastiness there. there's no like um 
Although it is set, it's set in, I think it's set in, is it LA? And they go to New York with the other way around. I think it's yeah, they start in New York and then they just literally cuts and then LA. <laughs> yeah, and they're not, not even out of breath and they've run on foot as well. And it, when they, and, and they're sort of, um, that his the the sort of guy he meets who's a bit down on his luck, who kind of becomes like a sort of mentor figure, well almost like a brotherly sort of figure. There's like real real homosexual undertones that are never fully explored, but they they up up front enough for them to be very noticeable. Yes, um, and, and I that, genuinely think you could write a convincing essay on the gay subtext of this film. Yeah, it could because there's certain moments when. But there's no, like John claude Van Damme, there's no hint of him ever trying to ingratiate himself into his dead brother's family. Like he's not falling no. in love with his wife. Uh, and there's no, there's, there's a few opportunities where he could just have effectively this, like, um, what's the word? Like, you know, just no, not no holds barred. What's the term looking for? Like no strings attached sex. Yes. He, he the people are willingly trying to seduce him. Yes. And for no real reason, he just does. <laughs> He's not interested, but then when he has a conversation with this sort of like the the guy who plays his um the guy he meets when he first goes to New York, yeah, like agent, um, oh, yeah, his agent. That's the yeah. It's they 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 have these really earnest conversations about about like you know I, I no one cares about you, you care about me, and <laughs> it and, and then it like linger on them for a bit, and it's like okay, but <laughs> you're kind of waiting for them to lean in and just do the kiss, yeah. But um, yeah, but yeah um, that, which is nice mm. because there's so much machismo in these films. Normally, it's it's actually nice not to roll your eyes at the screen and think, "Oh, here we go." Yes, you know, it's, yeah, the usual. I, I mean, apparently, Jean Claude himself asked to include the scene where he shows his bum, um, and I was reading that apparently Sheldon Lettich said that um, it was it was something that the ladies and the gay guys appreciate, so it broadens the audience a little bit further, I guess. It, that is a good bum, in all fairness. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Fair play, John. You've done you've done well there. He's been working there is, out, I think. He doesn't need to wear a belt because that ass will hold up a lot of trousers, regardless. <laughs> it it would hold up a round of drinks, that <laughs> <laughs> It would hold up under scrutiny. Yeah, it's uh it was good ass. And it's a good film. And yeah, like you say, it, it, it's kind of a feel-good film in a way. And yeah. um yeah, I the think, um, Yeah, I think Sheldon let it worked on um Bloodsport and Double Impact before this, but I do think this is a step up from them. Oh, you actually Impact. care about the characters for a start. Mind you, Double Impact is so good as well. It's so funny. Double Impact would be like ninety four or something like that, is yeah. it? Oh, maybe no, maybe it was just afterwards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, he did do a lot of films in quick succession. I won't lie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, Lionheart, absolutely without leave, is a good film. And there's a lot of people in there. There was one one guy at the start that you see briefly get kicked into the face into some crates. And say, is that Billy Blanks? Yes, yes, it is. Yes. Brian uh, Thompson's in it, and he does no fighting. It's so funny. He does nothing. He just gets punched in the face at the end, and that's it. <laughs> it's funny, though. He's, he's just a good scream. He's so menacing. His lips are pursed in that film. His lips are, and his jaw are pushed forward slightly. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> That's all you need to say. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yes. Lionheart. yeah, very good. Lionheart, definitely worth checking out. Where do we see it? It's on Amazon Prime. So oh yes, we've got to remember where we watch these. Yes, things. that was an Amazon Prime special. Um, well, I'll quickly, I'll quickly tease one out then. You said you were going to watch Hell Comes to Frogtown. Did you get round to that? I didn't get round to it. No, but I, I, I remember some things about it. Well, it's been a it's, long time since I watched it. I've got a feeling. I think this film was, I want to say, eighty-seven or eighty-eight. So it's Rowdy Roddy Piper, 
um, who was, I think, just he was kind of dipping in and out of wrestling at the time. We've talked about another Rowdy Robert Piper film in this podcast, um, Jungle Ground, made in '95, and this is one that was made in far earlier in, in the late '80s. And I don't know if it's based on a comic or whatever, but it seems very comic booky. Like the whole thing is quite ridiculous. Where it basically these kind of frog people, mutant frog people, coexist alongside humans in this sort of Mad Maxian post-apocalyptic landscape and Roddy Piper is the only one of the only male humans left capable of reproduction and he gets taken in and he thinks he's going to get taken across the desert basically just shagging women and repopulating it but what's weird about it is considering he's a wrestler and considering the the, the setting of the film it's never like a sex comedy. It never did. It, he's he's really kind of reticent to have sex with these women, some of whom are quite beautiful. He's really just like, oh, I just want to go. I just want to bugger off. I just want to. Can you just leave me alone? I and he's remember, like this kind of pathetic yeah. character through it, which is quite funny. Yeah. I remember my my overriding feeling was that um, what could have been quite smutty and tedious and sexist was quite well balanced. It like yeah. was quite mocking of both genders and there were funny scenes in both directions sort of thing. Yeah. You know, we were talking about um, how in 48 hours, like the, the, the racism is just one way traffic and that yeah. makes you feel really uncomfortable. It's like if, for example, in 48 hours, the, the racism went both ways, then it instantly alleviates the problem and you either take it or leave it. You know, these two people bantering, it takes it turns abuse into banter right so it's almost it's more like that it doesn't help come to frog town it doesn't seem sexist in one Ultra direction magician. yeah yeah it's it and it is like that you get the you get these kind of um the, the women who are taking him along you've got the kind of sexy doctor who's you know he's got this like ridiculous chastity belt on that like electrocutes him if he gets too far away or whatever and she's completely in control of him and then you've got like this hyper um, military woman who's like really sort of um, masculine, like looking after him. But and then when they go to Frogtown, um, I watched it with Faye, and she was she said that she really enjoyed the spec because it's all practical effects, obviously. Yeah. And considering the budget of it, it is kind of and it is kind of schlocky, but it is really fun. When they get to Frogtown, you've got these people in ridiculous costumes and like this frog woman, like dancing seductively and stuff. Um, and yeah, the whole film comes along. Like I thought, I watched it a long time ago, and I, and I. I don't remember much of it apart from the fact it was quite bonkers and watching it now it, it's not like you say it never it never just degenerates into just like like smutty fast smutty dick jokes and stuff yeah. it's it's and i and i love how he's such a he's like oh, I, I just don't want to be doing any of this can you just let me go i don't want to be so exasperated yeah <laughs> and even even at the end the, the it's okay to do spoilers because it's over 20 years at the very end it's really nice because they kind of get rid of the main bad guy and whatever. And as they're in the van, he it's like him and this the doctor woman really kind of is falling in love with him and he really likes. And she says, Oh, and he's like, Oh, yeah, now we can be together. And they kiss. And she says, Oh, yeah, but first you've got work to do. And she points to the back of the Jeep, and there's these like three or four like beautiful women who all want to he needs to impregnate. And and she's completely fine with that. And he's like, uh <laughs> and even then it's like, Oh, can't I just do my own thing? So it kind of deflates that kind of oh god out shagging boys mentality. Yes. so yeah it's, it's really good yeah i will i will get around to watching it again the two sequels i don't know the quality of those <laughs> two sequels i need to make one what was the other one 
Oh, was it, it returned to Frogtown? One of them. It was made in like it was one of the one of the sequels made a few years later, and the other one was made like in the late nineties. Right. So I thought the the wasn't the immediate sequel never finished or something or or was did it get a release? Did it have him in it again? You're, you're the Frogtown series nerd here, Rupert. Okay. Yeah. Uh, don't push your glasses up at me, young man. I, I'm not sure. I just remember seeing there were two sequels and thinking, hmm, would I ever watch them? Um. <laughs> Because you know, you know that balance would be gone, and it would just, it would just be. I, I, I might watch them just to prove a point. I reckon the balance will be gone, and the humour will be one way. That's what I think would happen. That's um, Hell comes to Frogtown support. One sequel, Return to Frogtown, which was released directly to VHS in 1993. Mm. Toad Warrior was released in 1996. Right, that's the one. I'm and thinking. later re-released as Max Hell Frog Warrior. In 2002. Oh my god. They're going to be crap, aren't they? Um, But yeah, I I watched that on Amazon Prime. And you should too, if you like uh, dystopian... I I think I have the Arrow Blu-ray, actually, so I think I'll be... Of course you have. Um, Didn't doubt you for a second. (laughs) Um, Okay, so I'll, I'll move on to my next one then. This is The Five Bloods. Right. It doesn't really sound right in a like a white English accent, is it? Da Five Bloods. Um, That's probably not what it's meant to be said, no. No. Um, this is uh, Spike Lee's new film, which is on Netflix. I think it's a Netflix original, actually. Spike Lee's last film, was that <sighs> Klansman? Sure. Uh, yeah, Black Klansman, yeah. Klansman, right, okay. That was good. Um, I've never seen a Spike Lee film, by the way. I don't think so. You should watch Do the Right Thing. I mean, it's kind of... It's that's very... The, that's Tom Hanks, isn't it? And that's that, like, the band he puts together. No. Oh, that's the thing you do. <laughs> uh, do the Right Thing was uh, late 80s, uh, set in uh, New York, on New York Street, and it's set over, like, one day and one night. And it's basically kind of slice of life type thing, just a load of characters all hanging out on the block and um and the kind of racial tensions between them because there's african americans there's koreans there's uh italian americans so and yeah and it all kind of like it's the hottest day of the year and it all kind of escalates into a riot at the end and it's yeah and there's a bit of it all it it all kicks off because of some police brutality so it's all uh, quite relevant to today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, yes, uh, The Five Bloods is the latest one. And this is, it's a Vietnam War film, sort of. It's uh, there's basically these old dudes, um, four old black dudes going back to Vietnam after they, they basically buried some gold there um, back in the war. And now it's present day. And so they're going back to basically get this gold and they will, they're all kind of going for different purposes. They want to spend the money on different things sort of thing. Um, yeah. And yeah, so they're going back and they, they're also, they also want to get the body of their fallen comrade. Um, so they can bring him back. Um, it's a little bit chaotic in its kind of structure and tone. Um, there's a particular element of it which really bothers me, uh, and that is the way that it, it quite often flashes back to uh, Vietnam 
as in their experiences in Vietnam. And and there you've got Chadwick Boseman is the one they kind of left behind, if you like. Um, and it's a bit weird because you've got Chadwick Boseman there, but they all play themselves, as in these old actors, including Delroy Lindo, all play themselves Delroy in the Lindo. flashbacks as well. Yeah. You think about how old he is. I mean, what is he, mid-70s now? Oh, I would say, yeah, late 60s. Early, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and so it's sort of, a, get, he gets away with it, but it means, because they all look a bit podgy and then don't move too well. And then you've got Chadwick Boseman, who's incredibly fit and young. It looks a bit silly. And I don't know why they did it, because they didn't need to, really. I mean, they, they haven't got much, to, they don't, you don't see them doing that much. They could have just had <clears throat> young actors. Um, at least it didn't de-age them, I suppose. But um, it's it's weird. It's a, it's well, distracting it's in the same way the Irishman's distracting. years before, but yes. they haven't de-aged them. So they're literally just them. Yes, I think they've dyed their hair a bit or something. And he, do, he tends not to really focus on them too much. But I just think, and for that reason, why do it at all? Anyway, but other than that, it's it kind of works okay. Uh, Delroy Lindo is really, really good in the movie. He's He's brilliant. And he always brings a certain gravitas, doesn't he, to his films? Yeah, he gets the most to do. He's got the most kind of acute PTSD issues going on. Um, and you really get the sense of this kind of frenzied mind, which is really easily triggered by stuff. Um, and he gets a couple of really good um, straight-to-camera monologues towards the end, which is always good. So he really gets to go for it. Um, the plot is kind of silly and boisey, but it does carry a kind of serious message um about the trauma of war but also kind of broader history the the way that um african americans have been mistreated throughout history obviously um yeah, i mean the search for the gold is it's kind of about the reparations for being disproportionately sent to war in the first place because there's something in it there's a someone mentions in there i think it's chadwick boseman's character he mentions that at the time 11 percent of americans were black but 32% of Vietnam GIs were black. So it was hugely disproportionate. And I kind of wish that central point, that injustice and the disproportionate sacrifice made by African-American men in this horrendous chemical war, I wish that was a bit more of a focus uh, of the film. I mean, because as, as opposed to the smaller... More in- well, yeah, because there's this whole subplot about they meet these uh, kind of European kids really who are going around um, well-meaning European kids who go around clearing landmines. And it's, it's quite a, I don't know. It seems like quite a kind of, I mean, it's relevant, I suppose, but in a way it's, it's sort of, it runs alongside the rest of it. I think they could have probably dumped that and I don't know, made the connection with black lives matter a bit more clear because it's very much at the end, uh, it kind of unashamedly is uh, like bigging up Black Lives Matter, which is fair enough. But I think the the central point about the disproportionate representation of uh, African-American men in Vietnam is a bit lost in all this. But but it's really it's, it's really fun to watch. And there's a real kind of tension in the banter between the guys because they they all seem like really like laid back and. Uh, kind of there's a lot of banter between them but then but then it's it's such a thin veil over the kind of pain they're all feeling underneath and the trauma they're all feeling 
Um, and it's that kind of shared pain that keeps it just about keeps all of the various plot meanderings just about together. Um, yeah, it gets a bit sentimental the, towards the end, but um, is it? A, is, but does it earn it? Does it earn the sentimentality? I think it? so. Yeah, yeah, because you get there is a real sense of I think because they're older actors, they they almost like they make it look as if they've known each other for years, sort of thing, or at least shared something very impactful. So yeah, they do pull that off. Um, how long? How long is the film? Sorry, it's over two hours, I think. I was going to say it sounds like it would be a bit of a chunky monkey. Yeah, it's, it's just a, a yeah. It's got a lot of elements to it, really, because it's got like the, you know, the brutal war stuff, and it's got, but it's also got this kind of quite high concept plot, um, and then, but it's also got like quite a silly, ridiculous action scene at the end. Obviously, Jean Reno rocks up. Actually. What? Of course he does. I, f- yeah. I forgot about him. I have to play on a Musher again. Now. He just looks like a podgier version of himself, really. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't really look any older as such than he ever has. He's just a bit better. Um, oh, yeah. Okay then. So I think it is worth watching. It's it's messy, but in a very compelling way. Should we say? Um, where did where did you see this, sir? That is on Netflix. Yep. Well, this is my next film. Um, doesn't doesn't lead into that at all. I can't even think where I can do this, so I'm just going to hurtle on with it and say that I watch Stripped to Kill, <laughs> which is is it like a mid eighties? The thing is, I, like I said, this is from the the night that I was a bit teased. So uh, I, we watched Hell Comes to Frogtown, and I thought, well, you know, it's only like half eleven. Let's check out another film. So I gave Faye the choice of watching Strip to Kill, um, about a serial killer hunting and murdering strippers, or Incubus, about like a sexual rapist. And she said Strip mm. to Kill, so it's like, fair enough. They both looked like really sort of like nasty uh, New York, early 80s sort of oh, thrillers. So I was like... Grindhouse, nice. Well, this is the thing, right? This is because, of course, this is why this is actually a really good double bill with Hell Comes to Frogtown by accident. So I put on Strip to Kill, and it opens. It's so bear in mind, it's about someone killing strippers, right? It's the early '80s in New York, and it's really, it's like a really foul New York. So it starts off with, I would say, ten to twelve minutes of just strippers just doing routines yeah. to pretty bad rock music. But weirdly, when I was watching it. After after a while, I turned to Faye and watched these women, these women like dance on the stage, and they've all got like, you know, one rides in on a Harley, one is kind of like a cutie princess. It never gets too explicit. It's on like topless with like panties on. But I turned to Faye and said, not like this is really sleazy, but I said this, they're actually really good dancers. Like these are actually quite impressive routines they're doing. And I was like really impressed, like with their their sort of abilities and their like in their, their thigh strength and stuff. And such a nice thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, it's, it's actually quite impressive. And I realized when I went online that it's directed by a woman, I think her name's Kat Shea, uh, who worked a lot with um, oh, Lloyd Kaufman. Oh, sorry, Roger okay. Corman, not Lloyd Kaufman. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And, and they were actually strippers. So that's what that sequence was good. And then when the film started, uh, yeah, you see a woman, a woman being killed, but it's, it's actually quite well done. It's again, it's 
oddly respectful to women for like the title and how it sort of um, presents itself. Mm. And it goes on and there's and it's like a, a woman in the police force goes undercover to try and find out um, who, who's doing these killings. And there's a guy they call Pockets in the club. Cause he's always like, listen to me. And he always got like one hand in his pocket. And you're like, oh, what's he doing with that hand? And Masturbating. Uh, well, no, this is the thing. These oh. things, it turns out that he's obviously really awkward and the, the, he's like the number one suspect because he's always like he's always trying to talk to the women after the show and they tell him that you can't go backstage and stuff and he's really socially awkward and he was like runs off and and um but then it turns out at the end when the sort of male cop involved who looks exactly like craig bierko um just loose just says oh it's obviously this guy let's stop messing around these women are getting killed let's just pull him in and he it turns out this guy is um just got like really serious ptsd from from vietnam mm-hmm. and he's just he's just got like he's just really kind of um, got learning difficulties and he when he takes his arm out of his pocket he hasn't got a hand that's why he keeps it in his pocket because he doesn't <laughs> right. want to see it and yeah. then but there's this sequence when he is he's obviously trying to explain that like oh, they're just you know and apparently he's like he's got a war wound something to do with the mind where he basically has no libido he's, uh, he's got no genitals and he's missing parts of his body and there's this sequence where he, he says, oh, you know, it's it's not me. And he's trying to explain himself. He's just really shy and nervous. And it's handled with like a surprising lightness of touch. <laughs> like the, the guy, the cop is like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, and it's like this actually quite nice scene. And then the guy just kind of is like, oh, can you just leave me alone? And it's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. And I was like, oh, that was actually quite nicely handled. <laughs> and so, yeah, you kind of you kind of waiting for the film to turn nasty because of how it is, but it never does. It's a really this the acting is astonishing in it, but for like, it's it's felt quite forward thinking in how it approached women, and because it's directed by a female, it it, it kind of. Um, it never gets nasty. It never gets really horrible and foul. It's always right. it's always just about the killings. It just happens to be set in a strip club, and it's got some pretty tasteful dancing in it. So all in all, pretty tasty. <laughs> yeah, I might <laughs> generally watch that. That sounds good. I did. I like any movie set around that period depicting New York because it's just fascinatingly grimy. Mm. Um, but the fact that it's actually an okay film as well. Yeah, it's it's really it's really low budget, and I don't know yeah. I know the name Roger Corman, but um, apparently there's a there was a couple of films knocked out around this time where Cat Shea, who works with Roger Corman, he said, "Oh yeah, I've made another film in a strip club, and I've got like, I've got three days left of rental on it, but I I don't need it anymore. Quick, write a film." And so they did. <laughs> it's that kind of you know production mentality, but yeah. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I was surprised. It was one of those things. I was watching it, waiting for it to, for me something disagreeable to happen, and it was like, yeah, it's a fine little thriller. Good. So, yeah. Um, well, a film which is not respectful to women in the same way is Savage uh, Streets. Um, this was okay. made in 1984, I think. Okay. Uh, and this is a. <laughs> That's not a good is... start. <laughs> well. It's not as bad as another film we'll mention in a bit, but it's uh, it's not particularly good either. It's a mid eighties like exploitation flick with Linda Blair, obviously. Um, uh, I guess at the height of a um, drug addiction and stuff. She would have been um, like twenty two, twenty three at this time. Yeah, I think the she kind of plays like an older teenager with her mates, and basically she has a deaf sister who's in the school with her sort of thing. And um, they're all kind of a bit 
all, all the girls are a bit kind of uh, boisterous and aggressive, and I guess they're kind of the the mean girls of the school. Um, but she's extre- really nice to her sister because her sister's deaf, and she really looks after her and stuff. Um, but then one day, uh, this gang. Um, I'm not sure if they even go to the school. I think they just come into the school and trap her deaf sister in like the locker room and gang rape her. So, yes. Uh, and is this, is, I know this is a, a strange thing to say, but is it a really animalistic, lurid and unpleasant gang rape scene? Like in, is it kind of voyeuristic? And there was one in the death, I think it's death wish two where his daughter yeah. gets raped and, and they're kind of like laughing at her as they do it like animals and it was just it was I don't know it was just well it's it, it's almost, it almost made out like it was a bit of a joke I was like mm. yeah it's, I guess it's done I mean it's not no and it's not too voyeuristic and okay. yeah it's not too bad um, you know it's because you get stuff like um, I spit on your grave and things like that and it, in or, or straw dogs and it's a bit like yeah, it doesn't really need, you don't really need to see all this, or it doesn't need to go on that long, etc. But no, I, I think it just about gets away with it. I mean, the the film as a whole is pure sleazy trash, but it does have a kind of aggressive energy and this sort of unpredictability, which does keep it quite interesting. What is a bit troubling is that you got these all these salacious kind of shots of scantily clad teens. Um, <sighs> which sit rather uncomfortably alongside the, the rapey nature of the gang of boys who are after them. Um, yeah. And it's like, oh, feel free to kind of ogle and fantasize about these teens, uh, dear viewer. But, uh, oh, now here's an example of what you shouldn't be fantasizing about <laughs> is the horrible rape scene. It's like, but then I'm, I was thinking about it, and I guess that is kind of exploitation cinema in a nutshell anyway, that it kind of indulges the very thing it condemns in a way which is why i don't particularly like exploitation exploits it if you will yes exactly <laughs> so uh linda blair isn't really a very good actor uh, i was gonna ask this actually because i don't think mm-hmm. i've i think the only time i've seen her in another film is in where she plays uh, an, like a, a kind of a nancy allen character in a cop film i've seen at some point um right so i don't didn't know what she was like as an actor uh, yeah i mean it's you're kind of waiting basically for the bit where she's going to get her revenge on this gang. And it does take a while to get there. Um, But it is, there is definitely a bit of a thrill when she actually gets to do it and she's very confident about it. And she, and she gets to take them out in pretty interesting ways, mostly with a crossbow. The (laughs) gang themselves are genuinely quite vicious and menacing. Some of the stuff they do is really, really harsh. Very one dimensional, obviously, because they're just going around like sneering really. (laughs) And but they're really, really nasty. I mean, like, like they kill someone at one point as well, so it's pretty brutal in a really nasty way as well. Um, it's quite well made, and the dialogue is. This, sorry, oh, it's some guy called. He's some guy who he went on to direct um, the Friday the Thirteenth film, the New Beginning one, number five, I think it was. Okay, I'm not sure if that was the one which is sometimes seen as a a kind of precursor to scream because there's one friday the 13th which was very much um kind of quite self-reflective but i'm not sure if it is that one to be honest i can't remember because they all get mixed up in my head to be honest um but yeah um anyway yeah so 
it, yeah, the dialogue can be okay at some point. I quite liked, like Linda Blair has some really good lines where she, cause she's got this school rival and she, and some of her put downs are really, really brutal. And that's quite funny. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's quite well made and the dialogue isn't too bad. So that's okay. Uh, yeah. And it's, the tone is just about balanced, I guess, in a kind of crass girl power kind of way. Um, and it is more coherent than a film I'll mention later um, <laughs> called Everly. So, yeah. So the, this is Savage Streets. And this is Savage it Streets and it is on Amazon Prime. And if you're in the mood for trashy, like, sleaze, exploitation sleaze, then it's, yeah, it's fine. It's worth, worth a shot. And it's interesting to see Linda Blair do something so different. So, yeah. Yeah. So Did she make many more films? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I think she just made just trash most of her career, to be honest. Ah, okay. But like, her agent. Like worse well, trash than this. Like badly made trash. <laughs> the worst kind of trash. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose leading on nicely, actually, to my next one, um, in that talk of like a, an 80s sort of trashy throwback way, is a film called VFW. Have you heard about this? No. I watched this on what this stand for? Netflix. Well, this is the thing. VFW put it on, and it turns out it's, it stands for Veterans of Foreign Wars. So actually, there's a war, New York sort of 80s throwback theme going on here today, yeah, which is yeah. fine. Uh, so the cast list. I, I literally saw the cast list and press play because I thought, well, this this can't be bad. This cannot scientifically be a bad film. So it's got um, William Sadler. Fred Williamson, uh, Stephen Lang, uh, some guy called Martin Covey in it, or I, I wasn't familiar with, and David Patrick Kelly, among others. Stephen Lang's the star, so obviously I hit the play button so fast that I actually shattered my Xbox controller, and um, and it came on, and the first thing that happened was amazing, just like swooping, really, you know that kind of like uh, when in the 80s in horror films and it's not really a horror film but when the font came up and it was red and the fonts kind of wobble on the screen slightly oh yeah you know oh, what yeah, I mean yeah. yeah so it's like this kind of bleeding like vhs kind of feel to it right. and it was this it, the the director had clearly watched Mandy because the soundtrack was this really heavy instrumental doom and I thought this is all completely fine and it started and it's just and the, the film is effectively um the, the VFW is a bar. The Veterans of Foreign Wars is like a bar, like a social club sort of thing, owned by Stephen Lang. And it's for a place for people, older people who have fought in like the Korean War. The, the, it's set in the early 90s, I think. It's kind of specifically, doesn't say where it is or what the year is, but you kind of get the gist that it's late 80s, early 90s. So you've got all these people going there and they're from these wars. And like Fred Williamson is 82 now. And I remember him. He's effectively doing like a little... Um, as, as sort of a callback to his character from Dust Till Dawn, where he, he the same thing happens. He's basically defending a bar, and it's with Fred Williamson. You've got David Patrick Kelly. They're all a lot, a lot of older guys. Um, and what happens is, a, a girl called Lizard steals a load of drugs and money from a, like a local dealer, and she kind of makes it into the bar. And then they kind of they're trying to keep this gang out effectively. So it's just like a, again, set through one night in the bar, trying to protect the girl and trying to keep everyone else out because it all happens at like locking up time sort of thing. Mm. And the the gang trying to get in 
are very much portrayed as like the younger generation. So obviously these are like men who have fought for their country and are very principled. And although they're, they're just boozing and stuff, they, they, they've obviously sacrificed a lot. And I think it's just sort of putting a knife through the fact that the, the younger, this younger generation, they're just a bunch of wasters. And they're, they're basically portrayed as these mindless drug addicted zombies. So they mm. just come at them en masse and they just get hacked down. Um, but it never, again, it never degenerates into just, real, there's no like, um, there's no speeches about, you know, I fought for my country. It's much more about the, the brotherly camaraderie of, of right. war. What what that what that brings out? So there's a really nice scene actually where when things are really, <laughs> really taking a turn and they've taken some casualties and everyone and this a real struggle. That the girl says to Stephen Lang, you know, I, I never asked you to help me, and he says, you didn't have to. Like mm-hmm. we're just doing the right thing. Uh, yeah, and that, that's nice. And it's just really, it's a really cool film. It's a really nice like 90 minute little action vehicle, and it's the problem I had with it was. I don't know if it's because of the age of some of the characters, because like I said, David, um, they're all a lot older now. Stephen Lang is probably the youngest one. He's, he's in his late 60s. William Sadder is just a dude in his 60s. And William, Peters, um, William Fred Williamson is 82. Mm. So some of the action sequences are cut very quickly. And I did know if that was to, to keep up the impact, because yeah. maybe they couldn't physically do it or whatever but Mm. what that means is there was one point a main character got mortally wounded and i didn't notice because it was so quickly edited and i thought well that's a problem because i'm actually enjoying this and it's the lighting is ridiculous it is like vamp they're in this bar everything's drenched (laughs) in this this drenched this like blood red the soundtrack is throbbing through the walls and they're making these ridiculous weapons just just hacking people down but um it's really good because the characters themselves they don't they're not particularly two-dimensional like there's you know when you watch a film like this there are certain beats that you expect like um you expect one of them to 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 just you know they board everything up and then one of them will turn on them and and, you know and selfishly just say like oh if you don't hurt me i'll tell you how to get in or or like just have a moment where they lose their mind And, and whilst that does happen there's like there are like slight twists on a theme so it's never just telegraphed it's never like oh right okay here we go unpredictable enough yeah to sort of keep it going um yeah it's i mean it's completely over the top and ridiculous especially towards the end the stuff that happens but but it was a really good film and it's just nice to see all those people on screen again yes you know it's just it kind of i mean all those people people i've seen and loved in other films and it was just great to see them all having a like a big last hurrah together so vfw is a really cool trashy action film that is definitely worth a goosey, especially if you love pounding doom metal and red, red lighting. <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, who doesn't like those things? <laughs> um, what was that on Netflix? Uh, yeah, that was Netflix. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I watched Gringo, uh, which is a film directed by Nash Edgerton, Joel's brother. Um. This is the one, isn't it? This is like how I spent my summer vacation. Yeah. Uh, the alternate title with Mel Gibson. Yeah. I thought this had an alternative title, but I don't think it does, actually. I think it, maybe it has always been called this. You know, it's so, how, how I spent my summer vacation. I'm sure it was a working title for it. Oh, really? Was that, was that what it was? Because yeah. I remember there was that. So what was the, um, what was the uh, Mel Gibson one then? Because that had an alternative title as well. So this, this isn't that Mel Gibson film? No, this is not the Mel Gibson film. Because I know the one you're thinking of. Yeah, how how I spent my summer vacation was then had its name changed to something else. Like Gringo, I'm sure it was. 
<laughs> well, maybe I don't okay. know. Okay, okay, but but this is this. There's no male in sight, unfortunately. But um, so this is about um, uh, kind of uh, David uh, Oyelowo plays a middle manager guy um, working for a pharmaceutical company. He he travels to Mexico with his horrible bosses, played by Joel Edgerton and uh, Charlie's Theron. Um, they go to Mexico to cancel a deal. It, it's kind of quite convoluted, but essentially um, the deal is going to put that local company in trouble with uh, gangsters, the local gangsters, because um, uh, the drugs <laughs> drugs are uh, not quite well-regulated yeah. down there. So, um, so <laughs> Drugs are not quite as well-regulated. <laughs> ah. Slight understatement, perhaps. That's but, all from um, the commander-in-chief. <laughs> um, yeah, so D- uh, David Yellowway's character, he ends up... He, he sees that people tend to get kidnapped um, down there. So he, he comes up with this plan to pretend to get kidnapped. Um, and, of course, ridiculous things happen, and he ends up actually getting kidnapped. It's all very much in the kind of Tarantino mold um, of a convoluted series of events leading a kind of bunch of grotesque characters into conflict with each other and increasingly like absurd situations. So uh, it sounds like it could go one of two ways. Mm, it's uh, I th- it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think overall it's pretty good. It's nice to see a kind of it is a comedy more than anything. And it's kind of nice to see a comedy movie which is scripted for a start and it isn't just a load of like improvised things that they just pick the best line sort of thing it's not one of them so it's pretty tightly plotted and stuff so um and and joel edgerton and charlie's theron have have an absolute kind of riot as these horrendous corporate bosses just the most (laughs) cynical just arseholes you've ever seen and um shelter copley uh, has a nice oh, little turn. Yes, good. He rocks up good. as uh, this mercenary uh, with with a heart sort of thing. He kind of he's he's sort of basically sent to uh, take take out um, David Yellowo's character. Does anyone mistake him for um, Leland Orser at any point? No, <laughs> they don't actually. Oh. Really, but then he's not. But then he's actually able to get entire sentences out without stuttering. So I suppose. <laughs> That's what gives him away. Um, um, the script is quite is pretty good, quite funny. It is quite in a it's quite a Martin McDonough type of script, like uh, you know, in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, that kind of thing, where it's very much like very cynical, very cutting lines, and it's it's much better at doing like the, that cynicism and the smart ass lines than any real emotion or anything like that. So, but then it's the same with Tarantino really, isn't it? So, um, the, the only bit that it was slightly, I wasn't sure about was, um, I mean, David Yellow is really good in it and he's, and he's a really cool actor and his character is a really nice guy, but then in a way it's kind of relative because everyone else is so horrendous. <laughs> um, I, there, I did get a sense that there was a, a little hint of kind of liberal racial profiling in making him this kind of naive African immigrant. It was almost like a shortcut to kind of innocence in a way, because it was almost like, oh, he doesn't know any better sort of thing. 
uh, and I didn't really. It seemed a bit, a bit of a kind of bit positive discrimination going on there, but I don't know. It, he's he's really good in it, um, uh, and I, I I'd say overall it's um it's kind of film you enjoy while it's happening and he's and you're really into it, but you never really. I can't see myself ever going back to it and thinking, oh, that was that was amazing. Got to watch this. It's just it's just pretty good, you know. So I think it does sound like something I might because uh, David Yellowo is someone I feel like I need to see more of. And I do like Charlton Copley. I do really like Charlton Copley um, for reasons unbeknownst even to me. So it's, yeah, it's almost like he's kind of basically doing his tough guy mercenary thing that he did in Elysium, really. So, um, but there's a bit more for him to do here because he has actually, he does have a nice, some nice moments. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's worth a watch. I think you'd uh, probably enjoy it. Yeah. I think I will watch that one actually. Yeah. Um, Um, that now, what was that on? (laughs) Do I remember? I think that was on Amazon prime. I think. Are you checking or are you just going to lie to me? Uh, Well, you, you move on and I will, and I'll go and check. Okay, I'll, I'll move on. <clears throat> I'll yeah. move on to um, Lord of Illusions, which was on Amazon Prime. And this is a film that I saw, I've seen twice. Uh, once when I was, I think once when I was quite young, and I was like, oh, this is, this is horrible. And then once a few years later in my 20s, and I thought, oh, it's actually quite average. And then now once <laughs> in my mid-30s. And I think this is a different cut to the ones I've seen before because there were whole sequences I, I really don't remember, um, and it is a much better film for it. So Lord of Illusions is, is a, a film written by and directed by Clive Barker based on one of his novels, and it stars Scott Bakula and Famke Janssen, uh, and he plays someone called, literally called Harry Damore, um, who is like a, like a detective who's got like, like in touch with the sort of spiritual world, and he he's just a kind of a burned out private detective and he gets dragged into these it's like awful, awful things because of his kind of sensitivity to the spiritual world. And he's, you know, portrayed as a bit of a burned out alcoholic, although he is the most sexy and fit alcoholic I've ever seen. <laughs> sequences in that film where he's in it, he's in his boxes. Scott Bakula is, is, has got the most manly body I've ever seen. It's like this perfect hairy toned, the chest and you're like you're yeah. just a set you're just a sexy dad scott at everything i see I know. it's so funny he's got this sort of like he's not like super muscular exactly but he's got these really broad shoulders and he's like a proper like triangular shaped torso and yeah like every time i see him I'm, i just see think like he's like got like this the, the kind of stereotypical like perfect slim body sort of mm. thing uh, so yeah, basically, fancy Scott Bakula. Even while I was trying <laughs> to, I was the list really. Whenever Fam Kansen came on the screen, I just put a lot of duct tape on that half of the telly. Um, <laughs> because I mean, obviously he's hideous to look at. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, so it's about, it's very much like it starts off with a cult. This guy called um, Nix, who is this uh, one of those cults where awful things are happening, and he's got like this this like ardent following. And then you, the, he's like trying to bring her on the end of the world, and, and you think one of them would think, "Hang on, that doesn't sound good." Because if he does that, I'm going to die, aren't I? <laughs> but they doesn't seem they doesn't seem to dawn on them for the duration <laughs> of the film. It doesn't seem to phase them. So they're in like this desert, like somewhere in like you know some nasty deserty part of uh, Texas or whatever, and or LA rather. 
and nicks this um who the character the character who plays him is really threatening actually it's pretty cool and he gets sort of sealed away by this ritual made by someone and i thought oh my god that is the perfect mix of um like brad the riff and larry fessenden but it's an actor i've never seen anything else um so he he gets locked away and then it fast forwards 13 years the girl who was going to be used in the cult is now grown up to be fam Hansen. and i swear to god the girl in at the start is is of a totally different ethnicity. She's like a Spanish girl, and she just turns into like a quite a like a pale porcelain Famke Hansen. And um, I was like, I'm sure that was anyway. So and then obviously uh, her husband, the guy uh, who sealed Nick's at the start, turns into like a stage magician, and he kind of dies on stage, or does he? And then Harry Damore, Scott Bakula, is brought in to kind of to see what's going on, yeah. and the film is good. It is good. There is some like it's, it's quite. Right, no. it's, it's not too bad. Like anyway, next one. Um, <laughs> it's it, it's got some nice moments in it of of quite like um gory horror, and it's not afraid to shy away from that sort of stuff. Yeah, I remember being fantastically violent. Yes, there are some sequences that uh, there was one bit, one bit in the film because one of Nix's followers who's trying to trying to raise him sort of from the dead. There's a bit where he's trying to get information out of someone, and he's always playing with scalpels and knives, which is never good. And he kind of hits this guy in the back of the head, and he sits. With his like, sits on his chest with his knees on his arms, so the guy can't move, and then he's saying like, "Oh, you know, where, where's, where's Harry the Moor sort of thing," and he's, he's saying, "I'm not telling you," ha 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 ha, and then he puts the scalpel in his mouth and he cuts across, not the lip, but like under the hard gum, oh. and he, like cuts across, and the guy does this scream with wide eyes, and it's a scream that kind of isn't just that really hurts; it's also a scream of. I didn't expect that. Yeah. I didn't like, expect it's a scream it of me. that actually happened on set. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Snuff movie scream. <laughs> so, yeah, and then he like sticks that he's talking to him and he's sticking the knife like he's, he's thinking he's going to pop his eye out, but he sticks the the knife, the scalpel in kind of like like under his eye socket really deeply to properly pop the eye out if you know what i mean like like through the jaw almost and up and i was thinking bloody hell you're keen um i would have told him everything the moment that man walked in and and put down his butcher's belt and like a load of knives like tringed out across the desk i'd say right what do you want to know it's happening i'll tell you, <laughs> tell you. i will record it i will tell you everything um, we can make a documentary for god's sake come on <laughs> yeah even if he just knocked at my door i'd be like i'll tell you anything through the door to him even if i thought it was my wife coming home um so yeah it goes scott backler's really good it's got that whole thing where he Scott Bakula is always really good. It doesn't matter if he's it in a movie is, for two minutes or whatever. He is a good actor. He brings something to it, um, which we'll also talk about in Color of Night. Um, but what I really liked about it was he's he's kind of um, he has been like he's never like this heroic character. Mm. He's just he is trying to do the right thing, but he is completely out of his depth, and I do like that in films. Yes. Um, you know where he is when he meets Nick's this like demon. He doesn't understand. He is just overpowered. And he's just kind of lucks his way through, and I do like that. Uh, the two things that do drag it down a little bit are the special effects. Whenever they turn away from practical specs, yes, I remember that. Yeah, there was. A I, scene- I couldn't remember if that was because I couldn't remember that, if that was Lord of Illusions or Wishmaster, where they use some pretty dodgy. I don't even know if it's CG if it, or if it's just superimposed special effects, but I remember that being pretty bad. Yeah. And- Anything CG and and the bit at the end and I'm allowed to say it because it's it's not really a spoiler anyway but at the end of the film right this guy next the the demon sort of lord is trying to end the world is standing over a an opened portal to hell it's like a huge like drop 
thousands of feet deep and it's a portal to hell. And he's standing over it like laughing and saying, no, haha, I've won sort of thing. And mm. Scott Bakula, instead of just, and he's behind him and the guy doesn't know he's there, instead of just pushing him into this pit, right. he says to someone, to this magician, oh, like, make me float. So the guy uses the last of his life force to make Scott Bakula like float slightly. And then, and then he kind of rushes across in really bad CG and like just kicks him in the back of the head into the hole. And right. I thought you could have just you could have just pushed him. You didn't have to float four feet <laughs> in the air to give up and pushed him. Yeah, yeah, it was it was like okay. Really odd. But yeah, it's a good film. It is a good film. And it's quite it's quite a nasty sort of film. Um but it's made it's obviously got a bit of a budget behind it and there are some really nice set pieces. And um yeah. yes, it's a really decent little horror. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose yeah, Clive Barker's done a few things in Hollywood as because didn't he direct the his Hellraiser film? Yes, and he he did a few others. He came back and he did one called Dread, and he was going to do a few um uh, like sort of uh, uh, collections of the books of blood and stuff. And they he started them and they were really good, and then yeah. they just stopped in two thousand and nine, uh, like Midnight mm-hmm. Meat Train, Dread, Books of Blood, and you're like, yeah. could have just carried on with that, Clive, because they were actually tasty. Yeah, that's disappointing. Um, yeah. yes. Um, good. Yeah, I'll have to watch that again. Again, it's been a while since I've seen that, but I remember. Yeah, being yeah. Um, I need to talk to you about Death Wish, twenty eighteen. Okay. Not, not the Charles Bronson one. <laughs> yeah, sadly. It's, this is the Eli Roth one from twenty eighteen, and um, I mean, right? Okay, the original look, look- film. Got to say, there's a lot, lot of, lot of problematic ingredients here. You've said Eli Roth, you've said remake, you've said Bruce Willis. I'm not getting good vibes here, but <laughs> um, I right, the original wasn't exactly a liberal film. Let's put, put it that way. But this, it really, it really ratchets, it ratchets it up to the next level of right wing. Um, it's basically that horrible scene from Die Hard 5 where he starts sh- where John McClane starts shouting at a Russian man for speaking Russian in Russia um, except the whole film <laughs> that's a new and... level of intolerance really isn't it <laughs> <laughs> travelling to another country to tell them to stop speaking their own language at you. Yeah. Um, so uh, so it's kind of the same plot as the original um, where uh, so Bruce plays a he plays a surgeon and he <laughs> is obviously and he's called away to um a, no you know to go to work because it's important and um his family uh are basically left alone and um they go to his Bruce's brother's house and these this gang turns up. Um, Jeff Goldblum isn't amongst them this time, um, and and basically they they murder his uh, Bruce's wife uh, and rape his daughter. Mm. Uh, do they rape his daughter? I can't remember actually, but they almost kill her anyway. But yeah, um, it's all pretty unpleasant. Um, and of course, the police are completely useless naturally, um, and Bruce's grief is only solvable through revenge. It's the only form of justice that will do, frankly. And oh, right, okay. We, we do glimpse some counselling, but Bruce isn't interested in that. He's, he's a real man. <laughs> he doesn't do talking. <laughs> well, after, if they just say, well, that's the end of the session, Mr. Willis, he's like, well, what was that? Talking? 
talking. It was talking. Is it? Um, yeah. Uh, Bruce tracks down the culprits ridiculously easy. Um, easily. <laughs> Obviously, the tacit suggestion being that the cops are too incompetent or lazy to do it themselves. Naturally. Um, <laughs> like the the. It's like a, an NRA advert, basically, the whole film. There's, there's one scene after the funeral where Bruce goes back. He, he goes back to his dad's ranch and there are some poachers or something on the property. And he just gets a shotgun out and starts shooting at them <laughs> and makes this big speech about how the, the cops are useless because they'll only come when the crime is after the crime's happened. So you need to defend yourself with a gun while the crime is happening. Right. Um, which... It's a bit doesn't really make any sense given the context of what's happening because of course that's not what Bruce is doing. He's he is he wants revenge and the crime has happened. So anyway, regardless, um, every it's it make it keeps making a point of how unpleasant and right wing basically um, the good guys are in this film. There's a scene where like this homeless guy um, is just trying to make a quick buck, like cleaning Bruce's windscreen uh, um, at, <laughs> at traffic lights. And not only is the homeless guy depicted as really rude and entitled, but um, Bruce happens to be on the, on the phone to a cop and the cop informs him that he, that he's within his rights to run the guy over and stuff. And it's like, Oh, Bruce is like, Oh really? That's nice. Oh, the, the cop, that, that same cop as well. This, it's just, everything is so awful. The same cop, you see him in one scene. He like, He's looking at the lunch that obviously his wife's made him, and it's got a gluten-free cereal bar in there. And, and he just like looks at it, sneers at it, tries it, and then chucks it in the bin. He's not having any of that bloody hippie crap. He needs gluten. Like a man <laughs> has gluten. Doesn't he know that? Um, Stupid Bruce, crap. Um, there's a bit where Bruce whinges about everything being online these days um he goes oh, i miss envelopes uh, and it's just stuff like that he's a real old school kind of guy but did he um, by any chance use the internet to track them down uh oh yeah obviously naturally straight on the internet when it suits him yeah i yeah, find yeah. now <laughs> yeah um and there's there's this like confrontation at a soccer match earlier on uh, early on before any of this kicks off um where like someone's being really really uh, aggressive and like starting on on bruce and Bruce actually, he actually kind of de-escalates it quite well. He's fine. And it actually ends up not, like nothing kicks off at all. He's quite reasonable about it. And then he's talking to his brother in the bar afterwards, uh, of course, placed by Vincent D'Onofrio. And and they're lamenting the fact that they, that um, he couldn't um, punch the guy like the good old days. The, the film basically loathes everything about modern progress. Um <laughs> <laughs> right there is like the, the vague like whispers of social commentary come in the form of these talk shows that they'll have oh, so it's so dated instantly they have like these on and um, these like youtube talk shows where people obviously when bruce has gone full vigilante there's people discussing um the kind of morality of what bruce is doing asking questions about him. obviously not actually having any real conversations just saying is what he's doing right or wrong? And, you know, that's it, really. He's taking gang members off the streets and drug dealers and all this kind of stuff. As if, as if um, anyone's going to care about murdered black gang members and drug dealers, because they are almost exclusively black, by the way. Um, uh, like that, And right. that's part of the problem with America, of course, because um, <laughs> no one's going to care anyway. 
so anyway so the, the film will date very fast as well um it's dated as we're having this conversation <laughs> no it's it sounds funny. like it should have been called four channels and a bad marriage <laughs> sorry it's be yearning for yeah like the good old days the good old uh, days you couldn't couldn't even watch telly it was <laughs> broken oh brilliant yeah, we like. Oh, I want to watch Death Wish. Oh, we can only. Oh, we just have to watch the second half of Death Wish three because it happens to be on. Um, so, <laughs> Joe Carnahan wrote the script for this, right? right? Joe Carnahan he wrote and directed, in fact, The Grey, which is a really good film, um, good masculine film about uh, death and grief, um, and that's a film which treats masculinity with some kind of sensitivity and intelligence. Um, and I, so I, it's weird because I don't really know what, what went wrong here because it I'm it's not clear if it was ever meant to be satire. Like, I don't know whether it's a case of like he wrote a satirical kind of thing and then Eli Roth just kind of like took his mallet to it. I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's some like light mockery of um, gun culture, like in one scene where like, oh, you get a free um you get a free gun desk if you buy today sort of thing. Um, but actually then that same furniture kind of saves them at the end. So it's not even satire. So um, there's like <laughs> one hint of possible self-awareness. I'm really reaching here for any kind of self-awareness that is the fact that every act of violence that Bruce commits in this, in this saga um actually escalates the overall situation and only puts him and his family in danger in further danger sort of thing so there is that but then that's never explicitly acknowledged no one ever says oh actually you know by doing you, this by doing what you're doing you're really yeah. making things worse for a lot of people um but then it but it is frequently acknowledged that he's taking dealers off the streets and stuff so i can see what it's firmly on the side of his vigilante justice naturally um, all of the 10 out of 10 reviews on IMDb praise the film for being back to basics and, and my personal favourite was um, is when people were saying oh, it's good to see like a, an action movie which doesn't push a political agenda I thought well hang on NRA the most powerful lobby in the entire United States I think it may be pushing an agenda a bit yeah. well, I think what they really mean is it hasn't got you know any Basically, it just treats the white vigilante guy as the good guy and the black drug dealers uh, and Mexicans. The thing so. is that 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 comment that um, it's not pushing an agenda shows that that person who wrote that review is so what watching that film and in, in such agreement with it and thinking this is this is this is correct. These are such correct things, like straight exactly. down the middle, saying as it is that it's not even any awareness of like. Yeah, it's just a, it's a political agenda they happen to agree with. <laughs> yeah, so they just think, oh, it's, it's good. But then that's the same with everything. I mean, you know, like I'm sure on our next state of play, we'll discuss the situation around The Last of Us too. And it's yes, supposed to be a political agenda because it has gay characters in it. <laughs> Forcing um, it down our throat. I know. M- making me watch Pixels Kiss. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> the Pixel Kiss, by the way, my third album is Electronica. <laughs> That genre. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm not going to watch Death Wish. I'm not going to watch it. Hateful, and Bruce Willis is awful in it, as he has been in so many things recently. He just seems completely detached and not interested in anything. No, he's nothing. 
I, I mean, in his defence, I suppose I'd be in the one. I suppose in his defence, he, it, it may be that he was filming it and thought, hang about. I thought when I read the script, I thought there was going to be some satirical element to this, but actually, it's just hateful and unpleasant. Uh, so maybe It'd be interesting to see like the, the Joe Carnahan's thoughts on it because that must be because that is a very that that line if that has been crossed in his writing where he has written something that is a satire of gun culture and it has been played totally straight mm. that must have been really dispiriting yeah is... but maybe it's just not perhaps it's not it, it just seems like it was made in 2018 um, and I mean, it, it was like unple- it was 40 years ago. It was unpleasant in uh, like, well, 40 years ago. But now it just seems so tone deaf, given given the climate and, you know, given everything that we see with, um, you know, uh, police violence and, and all this kind of stuff and Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff. It just seems it seems so out of place. And more concerningly possibly a kind of reaction against that which makes it even more unpleasant because even 40 years ago is unpleasant but now it's it just seems almost like uh i don't know it's it seems even more like a political statement far from having no political agenda it seems calculated jesus christ yeah that doesn't that just doesn't that doesn't seem like something I'm going to watch. There was a lot of these sort of films where it was, um, you had, you know, uh, what was it? There was that film, I forgot the title of it, with, um, there was that one with Michael Caine, basically Death Wish films where it's just like an older bloke, wow. just something awful atmosphere, and then he just, he just goes on a rampage. And yeah. there was one with Kevin Bacon in, there was one mm-hmm. with Michael Caine in. Um, and I just think, I just don't like that genre because it's almost like torture porn where it's just, yes. oh, look at, look at this awful thing that's happened. So now he can do whatever he wants and it's fine. Way. And it's like, no, I, I don't want to watch that. One, because it's really one-dimensional and boring. Mm. And two, because it's just like a, an absolute celebration of like really horrific violence and awful situations that I just, I just watch it and think. <sighs> yeah, it's, a, it's such a cynical worldview. It really is. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, don't watch that. No, I won't. Uh, what I did watch was Color of Night again, Brucey, Brucey boy, Brucey boy, back um, at, at his pinnacle. Then, have you have, and his tip, his tip in that film, fantastic little tip, underwater tip flick. That's what I was waiting for, which is fine. Um, but have you seen this film? No, Rupert, Rupert, Rupert. You need to watch it. It is. It is astonishing. I was I watched it right. It's it's got one of those things that you really appreciate, where it shows multiple scenes of the worst group counselling I've ever encountered. Where like Scott, so the story is uh, Bruce Willis is just kind of a really cynical kind of um, like half involved like wealthy psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm not entirely sure of the difference in American terms. In this like in New York, and a woman who. Uh, comes to him i think it might be a transgender woman i can't remember i was drinking at the time she kind of he makes some flippant comment while she's in the office and she literally just throws herself out of his like the, his window like 40 floors up hits the floor and he looks at her in shock on the floor outside and all of the the red drains out of his vision um so he can he can't see blood he can, he can just color of night he can just you know the blood appears to him as like this colorless gray thing 
So he, obviously, as we all would, he he basically seeks solace in the arms of Scott Bakula, uh, where he, this is a real tie-in to our films this week. He, um, <laughs> He goes. He goes to sort of LA to visit his, to visit Scott Bakula, who's got another successful sort of a practice, and he gets killed a couple of the days after he's there. He's in one of the. He lives in one of those dreadful, like custom-built architects' houses where you look at it and it's, everything's glass and it just looks awful, and you think that probably costs millions of dollars and it, it looks so foul. Um, this is really so, ringing a bell, by the way. I, maybe I have seen this. You must have. There's a scene with the other. Because oh, when you mentioned the house, I remember his house. It's yeah. It's it's real, real Michael Mann style, like, um, yeah, like an architect's house, basically. Isn't it? Yeah. So he goes to this. He sort of sits in on the, on the group meetings and gets to meet everyone. And Scott Bakula gets killed. And then the the police are Reuben Blades and plain and amazing. He has no temper in this film, Reuben Blades. Sorry, no temperament. He loses his temper at anything that happens. And it's got some really fantastic bad policing as well, because every time Reuben Blades turns up, he's just he's banging back the keelers. He's <laughs> he is not being effective in his job. Um so yeah, so what happens is Scott Bakley is killed, and then they say, right, you're 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 in a you're a psychologist, you know his, his methods and stuff, you kind of they know he's left notes behind Scott Bakula that says one of the people in this group I believe is the killer. I just need to work out who it is. Then he gets killed. So the group consists of a drum roll, if I can remember, Lance Henriksen, <laughs> Brad, Brad Dourif, uh, uh, a couple of other people, and actually thinking about it, oh my god, yeah, the guy who, who plays the sort of artist in it oh shit yeah the guy who plays the artist in it who's like got it like his, his life is funded by daddy's like a hippie plays the acolyte in lord of illusions with scott Bakula. Wow. oh my god i just realized yeah, this is like six degrees this of kevin bacon. bacon this is yeah, two degrees is of kevin ta- bacon tapestry of gold today <laughs> um so i'm really pleased with that i might have a um so <laughs> yeah so what happens is bruce willis is there and telling me rupert right there's one person in this this group that I've mentioned yet, and bear in mind this film was made in 1994. It is clear it, it's a boy called Richie, but it is clearly a woman wearing a wig oh, with false, false teeth, right? I so remember I this, yes, I, yes, yes. I said to Faye because Faye obviously works in that industry. She said, "Is is that are we supposed to? It's so bad." Yes, that, I remember it. I remember it. Yeah. Are we supposed to think us? Well, that's not a young boy like it's and no one mentions it in the film and of course i'm not going to go into the twist because if you're going to watch it but i want you to fully drink it in but it is baffling like it's absolutely baffling that they think anyone at any decade would ever be convinced by those special effects <laughs> and that makeup it's it's it like really takes you out of it. it's really jarring uh, I remember. That's, I remember. that's like a that's a wig that's a wig they are false teeth that's that a, woman. Is a woman that's not a young boy um so yeah it's just it's astonishing absolutely astonishing um but it's and it's quite long as well but it's so wonderfully astonishing but it's really well shot you know you got it's um it's like it's obviously the builds an erotic thriller but it's not particularly erotic but it is just a who's who of the 90s and mm-hmm. The clothing is astonishing, like denim cutoffs everywhere you look, and like long baggy jumpers in LA heat. Good. It's good. It's good to watch, but the last 10, 15 minutes, you just think, 
Oh, come on, guys. And it's the way as well that, like, not one, but two psychologists in the film, and that not a shred of professionalism between them. <laughs> like, every time they approach anything, it's like, that's just... That, not only, not only are you not doing your job well, but you're actually, like, it, inciting the worst yeah, parts. You're of actively making it worse for your clients. Yeah. yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, it's definitely worth a goosey. Especially for anyone in that, if anyone listens to this, who is in that industry? It's, it's, it does not represent psychologists. It's just astonishing the stuff he does. He just yeah. says things that like actually like offend, upset, and move them backwards in the in how they've progressed. Fantastic. I'm pretty sure I have seen this because I do remember that seeing that obvious woman oh. dressed up and and thinking like I didn't know whether I remember thinking at the time like if they just done that because they couldn't get another actor or something like they couldn't get an actor in time but then it seems really so bizarre it's really distracting and of course when this when the you know the twist happens you think yes right because you've known it from the second you've laid eyes on them so it just just yeah it's stupid um let's talk about everly with salma hayek versus oh, okay. japanese gangsters uh so she's in her apartment um and for it's sort of like it's like a kind of gangster's apartment there's lots of um it took me a while to work it out but the there's a lot of um, women in other rooms and they're they're prostitutes so it's like a kind of basically summer hayek's character was um essentially a sex slave for a uh gangster um and they're these gangsters are coming to kill her really um okay uh, and that's really all it is and that's all it really needed to be i kind of wanted just a film where she's defending her apartment from waves of enemies what what i really wanted was a kind of like a feminist home alone where somehow it makes traps out of kitchen utensils and stuff um but actually we don't get that it's uh it's a bit all over the place, really. Um, it's uh, there's no there's no real characters in it, or at least at least they're they're really badly sketched out. And a lot of the kind of exposition happens quite tediously over the phone for the first half hour or something. Nice. Um, it it doesn't start well because it starts with it like a, a shootout sort of thing, um, and she gets shot through the stomach it goes through her body and out the other side and she notices it when she looks in the mirror and it's like and she like winces but that's it she's absolutely fine after that she does not have any negative physical effects at all from being <laughs> shot, shot through the stomach. the stomach yeah and um yeah and it's it, it's ridiculous and then later on weirdly like when she's she's when she's like decides she's gonna stop panicking and actually kill all the gangsters and thing. Um, she goes and has, has a shower and, and you see her squeeze shower gel into her wound. It's bizarre. Like why you, what? It's so weird. Anyway, it, it's really, it's really trashy and, and quite juvenile. It's got these really, oh, it's got these awful cringeworthy lines. Like, um, like she'll, she'll like go up to gangster and say, I'm nobody's bitch. And then shoot them. And it's like, come on. It's not quite as cringeworthy or backward stepping as um, have you seen the latest Black Christmas Black Christmas remake? 
No, no. Oh my god, it's just oh, it's just it. It, it basically undoes everything feminism's ever done. But yeah, <laughs> bloody hell, in 19 minutes. Yeah. Um, oh, and, and it's got really bad lines. Like there's a, because one, the, one of the gangsters, she hasn't quite killed and he's like bleeding to death on her sofa. And he asks uh, if she can just light him a cigarette, um, uh, one last cigarette. And she says, oh, you know, smoking will kill you. And it's like, oh, shut up. oh come on. And, there's, there's, there are elements of farce in it as well. Like, is this a script that's been hanging around for a really long time and just get it made now? Quite possibly, quite possibly. That's bad uh, stuff. Yeah, it, 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 none of it really makes so much sense. Like, she gets her mother to come over with her child, um, for whatever reason. Um, I think it's because, I guess, because she's gonna die tonight. She thinks she's gonna die tonight, so wants to see her kid one more time. Anyway, um. Interestingly, I did check it out, and the person who plays her mum is only thirteen years older than her. It's just (laughs) somehow it looks so ridiculously good for fifty. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. um, So you got a bit of farce when, like, her mother is trying to like talk her way past the guards in the lobby, and it's like because it's just embarrassing. And then, and then we get even slips into a bit of torture porn halfway through um, when, like, she gets captured by um, this kind of. Uh, this sick doctor type person. He's a bit like kind of Steinman from Bi- Bioshock, where he's like, he wants to make his masterpiece by <laughs> chucking acid in people's faces. And there's, <laughs> yeah, there's a really, really unpleasant sequence where someone is like force fed drain cleaner and someone else is drinks acid. And it's all What's the point nasty. of these. This, the film sounds really totally all over the shop. Oh, it is absolutely all over the shop. And I, I, I couldn't really keep track of why, how they end up in these different places and what what i came to realize is that it it, that is so disjointed it comes across like like an angry edgy teenager right who has thought of all these cool shootouts and hot babes badass one-liners and like just horrible violence and and he's thought of all these things and written them down perhaps in his head and then strung them together essentially with this ridiculously flimsy plot, which doesn't make any sense. Um, and it is a classic thing where it's like, um, Oh, you know, it's almost like you want to achieve that cool shot regardless of whether it makes any sense in the actual story. For instance, there's one bit where um, someone she's in the apartment with like an ally sort of thing. And, she, and, the sniper like shoots this person dead, right? Instantly shoots them from this window, and and somehow like takes a machine gun and like fires across and shoots out the window, sort of thing. She doesn't know if she's killed the person or not, but she stands there, um, completely exposed, just standing there before these like windows where this sniper was, just staring at them like I'm gonna kill you, kind of thing. And it's like, well. You don't know if that person's been shot. You, this is just a cool shot of this woman standing there, defiant. Like it doesn't make any sense. I mean, he could just stand up and just shoot her. And there's so many times, so many times when, um, when people could just shoot her, or she could shoot them. But usually, they could shoot her, kill her instantly, but decide to make a speech instead, or decide to say something like, "Turn around and look me in the eye when I kill you," or something like that. And also, it's got loads and loads. I lost count of the amount of times that someone, a character, was 
on the a good like a good guy was on the character uh, was on the cusp of about to be killed like had their head chopped off or something and then suddenly the attacker is like shot in the head because someone's come along it's the, it's the deus ex machina thing again of just constantly someone being said and it the, once okay and you can get away with it and it's like woof, you know that was that was unexpected but after like three or four times you're just thinking well there's no threat anymore because anything which could happen and any peril that these people get into they're just going to be saved anyway because that's the kind of movie it is if i could um, just put my hand up as the kid at the back of the class and say this sure. sounds crap it's not very good no and is it a brand new film yeah, pretty. Uh, it's a few years old, maybe tw- mid twenty tens. Um, when did when did you see this? Where did you see this? This was on Prime, I think. Yeah. Oh, I will have to check that. Gringo, by the way, was definitely on Prime, so I'll check yeah. this one as well. Um, but uh, uh, weirdly, when I was watching it, I was thinking this has the same tone and style as a terrible zombie horror comedy thing i saw last year called mayhem um and lo and behold i checked it and it was directed by the same guy joe lynch and i i hate his whole juvenile kind of laddish edgy gamer guy kind of attitude um it, it just sounds really badly written like those lines yes they, oh, they yeah. would they would have been inexcusable in the 90s yeah it's yeah it's shocking really um yeah so definitely definitely not worth a watch um and yeah it's on amazon prime if you for some reason did want to watch it um i don't want to watch it Rupert. that's turns no. it just sounds crap it just sounds like a waste of my I time it, I, you know i was thinking i was hoping it would just be a simple film about uh her defending her home but no and it's just yeah it's just really knowing humor and stuff and it's ugh, yeah not good at all what other films has that guy done well he did the mayhem that one i mentioned the yeah which was it had exactly the same style of like wacky humor and it kind of like almost like it's almost like he's writing it um and with with one thought in mind to make people um to make people react like, oh my God, that's the wildest thing I've ever seen. So it's like all these wacky situations and it just, but it's completely incoherent. It, like it means that tonally it's all over the shop in terms of plot. It doesn't make any sense. I think he made a remake of Point Blank as well with Frank Grillo. Now, normally. <sighs> well, which Frank which Point Blank? Is, um, the one from the, the Marvin. 70s. Yeah. Was it 70s or 80s? No, 60s. 60s. 80s? Bloody hell. All right. Yeah. That one uh, with mm. Frank Grillo. Now, normally it's Frank Grillo, so I'll watch it, but I'm not going to watch it because <laughs> Joe Lynch. Yeah, it's it just, it just like you said, it's a problem when it's juvenile. When, when because when you watch a film, especially like an action film, if you 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 shouldn't have to be told this is cool. You should just think, oh, that was really nice. That was really nicely shot. Oh, that was a cool sequence. Yeah. When they're telegraphing, like, oh, this is cool. It feels like um, it's like a teenager going, dad, 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 dad. And that, that's the impression I got as you talked about that film that it would just really irritate me. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's like a load of, like, cool stuff, like awesome violence, but with no rhyme or reason. 
it's the knockoff. problem with all the, the sort of um, Tarantino knockoff stuff, yeah. um, where it's like it's trying to be cool, and it's it's such a pathetic thing to watch, yeah. to sit through. It's like watching a comedian who's not making anyone laugh. Mm. It, that's the that's the same feeling I get. Very so, try hard. Yeah. So I've got two left. Are you? Uh, it's going to be a long one, but you UK to smash on. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's, let's so, keep going. Uh, so the, my penultimate one uh, is The Last Witch Hunter with Vin Diesel from a few years ago. Um, I think it's 2010, 12. But um, it's got Vin Diesel in it. And obviously, as we all know, it's got Elijah Wood and Michael Caine in it. Um, so, Sorry? Obviously. Yeah, oh, yeah. I thought you said, what? Like you were so excited. Who's it? What? Say that again. Say those words again. <laughs> Elijah Wood and Michael Caine. So... Uh, this got pretty slaughtered, but apparently they're talking about a sequel. I haven't seen Ving, uh, Ving Rames, Vin Diesel in many films. Uh, a lot of them like XXX and like Fast and Furious, I don't watch them. So um, I, I haven't seen him in many things. But every time I do see him, I, I like him. I remember seeing him in Pitch Black. And I, I do, I, he's got a like really nice, rich, chocolatey voice. He, he's, he looks really amiable. He looks like quite a nice guy. And in real life, I know he's like a really pleasant man. So... And he sips deep in the games. Good. Um, so I kind of like him, but I've never really gone into his film. So I was watching this and it's, you know, it starts off and it, the, the premise is that they in like Viking times. So you'd be all over it. He's got a full head of hair, which is weird to see. He kills this witch and she. A syrup. Oh, it's such a syrup, Rupert. It is a syrup of figs. Um, he, he, he kind of, there's this witch lord, witch queen rather, and he kills her. But he's kind of tied, but her heart survives. So he is kind of, she curses him to be immortal as long as her heart exists, if you know what I mean. Mm. So they can't kill this heart because they'll kill him and he's this great warrior. So then it cuts forward to obviously present day, like New York. And it's, the film very much reminded me of Constantine with Keanu Reeves, um, which I had no problem with because I really, really like Constantine. Um, and it does the same thing where you know, in Con- do you remember the film Constantine? I do. Yes, I remember. I'm a big fan of Vince. Big fan of um, as you all do. I'm a big fan of Donald Gleason. I'm a big fan of all of the um, the the Hellblazer books, which are pronounced Constantine. His name in that, by the way, hashtag JS. But yeah, Constantine in the film, and I liked in that, like how, again, it's something that I specifically like. You like a film set over one nine. I like it when people look through things. When I watch a yeah. film and, and people like just bumble through a situation, they're like, God, that was lucky. I really enjoy that. Um, and, you know, in Constantine, the same thing happens here where he'll go into a room and there's a crime scene and he'll just like, he'll put like some weird artifact down and then it'll glow and show where this magic has been used in the room. Mm-hmm. And then like he'll say, oh, that's like the, I don't know, the talon of Iglesias, the old blah, blah, blah. I love all that. I love that kind of like half explained, just complete shash. You know, <laughs> oh, this is the finger of the Bishop of Guad. You know, I love that. They bring it out. Don't because I love things not being explained because I think when people get bogged down in explaining time traveling films, let it happen. So, yeah, you pull out something that shows where the blood is in the room and say you pulled out your bum and it's a magic finger that you found in hell. Wicked, wicked. <laughs> the, the the crazier the better. Don't explain it. Don't say where you got it from. Um, so I was that I was hip steep into that, and it's a typical kind of uh, clash. The woman in it is absolutely gorgeous. There are some nice set pieces. The problem with it is, it's really CG heavy. It's really CG. So right, yeah, yeah, CG, and you just think, oh my god, I wouldn't have minded some practical effects at some point. Um, 
so it's very, it feels very weightless. Um, he is mm-hmm. a capable action star, um, and there's a preposterous. Obviously, it's not twenty years old, so I can't go into it. There's a preposterous twist towards the end that, like, it was like they're on set and said, "Oh shit, we haven't put a twist in. Oh, just do this." <laughs> okay, action. It was literally like that, um, with no like no motivation behind what happened. And Michael Caine is in it for like briefly. I think I think a bit longer than I am. Um, yeah, <laughs> and there's a capable capable woman in it, and Elijah Woods in it. Um, yeah, and it's just a, it's a, I would put it on the same level of Constantine. It's I'd like to see a sequel to it because I think there's nothing wrong with these kind of fantastical kind of horror light. Yeah, action bringing film. fantasy into the kind of real yeah, world. Yeah, let it happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess see also Hellboy as well to an extent. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, well, I might check that out then. What what is that on? It's either Netflix or Amazon Prime. I think Netflix. Okay. But, um, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's not amazing. But like when it finished, I thought that was perfectly watchable. I don't know why that was so mauled. It's, it's just a perfectly acceptable film. Yeah. Um, speaking of weightless CG, I watched Anaconda. Oh, my God. Um. <laughs> There are so many... I, know, I know this is a film review podcast, right? But sometimes we say the things we've watched and I think, why? Why, <laughs> so, so why would films. I put myself through that? Yeah. But um, there are so many tropey characters in this film. Uh, I mean, like, you've got Ice Cube plays, and you won't believe this, but he plays like an LA homeboy. I don't know if, yeah. I don't know if that's a surprise. There's a stuffy English explorer <laughs> um, who actually turns out to be weirdly brave. Um it even has like horny teen. Yeah, he even has. It even has like horny teenagers in it, God. sort of. Owen Wilson is one of them, and he's not. They're not quite teenagers, I wouldn't say, but they're the ones who are always going off having sex in the woods and stuff. Um, and then, of course, you got John Voight uh, as the kind of he plays. The, he's got the Robert Shaw role as kind of uh, grizzled as well. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember what his hair's like in it. Um, it's in a ponytail, Rupert. You can say it. Of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Um, he plays a grizzled Paraguayan hunter. I mean, <laughs> typecast much, but yeah. If someone asked me to explain a Paraguayan accent to them, I I would say, well, just listen to John Voight. Obviously, well, I would not ask it. John Voight to give an example of it. I'm not sure what's going on there. It's just generic kind of Spanish, I guess. Um, <laughs> and obviously Jennifer Lopez is in it. Um, oh, and Eric Stoltz, naturally, Jennifer Lopez and Eric Stoltz. Naturally, Eric Stoltz and Jennifer Green Lopez team. are lovers. Why wouldn't they be? Um, uh, believable. Eric Stoltz is a weirdly attractive man. He is oddly. They they really go out of their way to make him handsome in this. Um, and they also basically just write him out of the plot for most of it as well, so he doesn't actually have to do anything. Um, the it's it's a trashy monster movie. Um, but it did really well at the box office. I remember it being quite a big deal, and they obviously made sequels to it. Um, there are four sequels, by the way. This came out at the same time. It was two years later, Lake Placid. These kind of big... Yeah. Well, siege- I think the latest sequel is actually Anaconda versus Lake Placid or something. So it'll be one the thing is that initially interested me then and then i realized it would be made by the sci-fi channel and it would be too self-aware so i won't watch it yeah and it would just be i mean i don't suppose the cg's probably improved in the series uh like the cg's so bad that it like there'll be scenes where people are getting like wrapped up by the snake and you can always it really bothers me about bad cg is when it really draws attention to itself because 
it's almost like the film is shot in a certain way um, with relatively static cameras, say. And then as soon as you get like a, a shot of someone getting wrapped up in the snake, this the camera suddenly starts circling around them. And suddenly the camera is is not fixed to anything. It's not a crane shot, uh, as far as I can see. It's just swirling around them, uh, almost like a drone or something. And it's weird. And it really draws attention to how that thing, that creature is not in the actual world with that person. It's, it looks so bad. Um, it's it's a very predictable film. And the night, the really nice guys are never really under threat. But I, I do think it has got a kind of knowing campiness to it, which kind of offsets a bit of that. I, I think there could have been like, watching it this time from an, a more an older perspective, perhaps. I feel that there could have been more of a kind of a theme to it because it seems quite ripe for a theme of like humans encroaching on nature or whatever. But it, it plays it very safe with regard to that. And you know, they, I was waiting for a scene where they kind of meet some tribesmen um, and are warned off the quests. By the tribesmen saying, "Oh, you don't know the woods and stuff like this. You know, you don't know what the jungle will do to you. It will bite back." But it wasn't anything. Hopefully, a tribesman headed up by the chief Delroy Lindo. Oh, if only. Um, that man. Oh, by the way, happens. Joel Schumacher's just died. Is he? Aged eighty. Yeah, just did a just God, popped I didn't up my phone. That old. Wow. No, I thought he was younger than that. I'm right. gonna have to watch some Joel Schumacher films this week. I'm well, happy to do that. We can have a Joel Schumacher thing next week, can't we? That's fine. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine with that. He's made a lot of good films. Um, I might even watch Batman Robin. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you took that one off the table. <laughs> better than Batman Forever. I'll always stand by that. Also directed by Joel Schumacher, to be fair. Anyway, <laughs> Anaconda <laughs> is not very good, but it's ah. yeah, it, it's okay. It's it is interesting to watch it from the perspective of this is the kind of movie that was being made at that time and how. <laughs> how kind of trashy and cheap it is and and camp it is. Um, but I suppose, yeah, well, when we watch some Joel Schumacher films in the 90s, we'll see that camp <laughs> was in at that time. So, yeah, so um, that's Anaconda. And which you watched on, do you say Prime? Uh, I think I watched that on Netflix, actually. Um, how many have you got left, sorry? Just the one remaining. Just the same. Okay, so... Uh, I've watched last night, so it's, it's burned fresh in my mind. I watched Black Butterfly, um, which is a Stranger Danger film with Antonio Banderas and uh, Jonathan Rhys Myers. So the film is, it starts off with like a, a like an America. It's set in America, so it's like a, a, a family having a picnic, and the wife sort of goes off to put the picnic stuff in the car as the dad and the son play frisbee, and then when they're like actually where is your mum it's been three weeks now where's your mum you know it's been 10 minutes and they walk around there and she's gone and apparently three or four women have, have just gone missing so then it cuts to Antonio Banderas hacking up a woman no, <laughs> so, so it cuts to Antonio Banderas and he's like an alcoholic writer uh, sort of removed from all that and he's just his, his wife has left him and he is like just completely got writer's block so he's living in this really, he says it's two hours outside Denver. So he's in this kind of remote, like uh, wood cabin. He goes out hunting and he, he can't pay his bills and he can't, he's, no one likes his scripts and they keep messing up his films. He's got no money coming in. And he's in a bar 
um, because he overtakes her, he loses his temper on the road and almost causes an accident. In this bar, he's just having a coffee and the, dr- the trucker comes in and sort of picks up and says, what the hell were you doing? And then Jonathan Rhys Myers just sort of gets involved, kicks the guy out a little bit, and then he ends up staying, he's a drifter, so he ends up sort of staying with Antonio Banderas and like fixing up his house while he, Antonio Banderas tries to write this next book. So what happens in the film, and it's tough to sort of talk about this without doing spoilers because obviously it's only like three years old and not 20 years old. What I will say is that it made me want to watch more films than Antonio Banderas in because I really like him. I really, I love the fact that he has held on to his accent. Does that make sense? He's got yeah. this wonderful, dancey kind of um, expressive accent. And Jonathan, so that's really cool. Jonathan, and he, he is an alcoholic and fair play to him, right? I've seen alcoholics portrayed in films before, but in this film, he, he is drinking. He, he, he's like, he's literally like, it's breakfast and he's he's like drinking. And to, Jonathan Reese Myers is like frowning him like, oh, do you want to stop drinking that? Maybe that's why, maybe that's why you're not writing stuff. He is drinking so fast, like meat whiskey out of the bottle. Like he's drinking and as he's drinking, he's like pouring the bottle into the glass like more and more and you think just stop for a second you must be parched and he's drinking and then at one point he wakes up and it zooms in on the bottle and he's drinking a bottle of a whiskey called Mong <laughs> M-O-N-G-E Mong or Mong just like oh my god nice bottle of Mong I think. Um, so, so he's just clocking back this booze and what happens to the first 20-25 minutes of the film are quite tasty it's very much like oh, like feeling around what's going on here. Which one of them? Like how dicky is Jonathan Rhys Myers with his preposterous bouffant hair? Supposed to be a drifter, perfectly coiffed hair, perfectly trimmed a moustache and stylized beard, um, and he's helping him around the house. And then there's a point when one of them does something insane, and you're like, oh, this is the kind of film it is, is it? Okay, so instantly bonkers, and there's twist upon twist and it's just one it turns out to be one twist too many um and the most important part of the film is that anton banderas is obviously supposed to be a writer in his 40s or 50s and he types one finger at a time on a typewriter (laughs) he clearly is not a writer he sat there if you can imagine this right the way he supposedly types his multi-million selling books is sat on a really deep-seated chesterfield so he like really sinks into it but he's really high. His knees are above the table he's typing on. And he's got a typewriter, which he's pressing at like... T- 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 you think you're not an author. You are not an author. Give him a laptop so he can just like press any old nonsense and just... Oh, he's, an, he's, like, he's an author. Don't draw attention to the fact that Antonio Banderas can't type on a typewriter. Um, so that was the, the biggest problem. Uh, but it's... It's a proper little pot boiler, you know, like at some point there's like, okay, this is the film it is, something happens, right? I know where we're going. But that's fine, but the twist upon a twist upon a twist, it was it was just cheap. Really cheap. By the end of it, what could have two decent actors and what could have been a nice solid thriller turned out to be they just had they were trying to overcomplicate matters. And by the end of it you just feel cheated. Yeah. Yeah, oh the cheating. Mm. Yeah. I want you to watch it so I can... I can't talk about it anyway for 20 years, so we'll have to watch it in 20 years. What's it called? Black Butterfly. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the Black Butterfly comes from a pivotal moment in the plot where 
Antonio Banderas has got like a pool. It's like a really shitty like pond outside his property that Jonathan Rhys Myers swims in, wearing his jeans for some reason. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Rhys Myers is covered in tattoos, right? Yes, he has a a small butterfly at the nape of his neck, but he's also got tattoos up and down his arms. And Antonio Banderas comes sauntering down from the house, just like just to say, "How oh, are you doing, really?" And he's sauntering there. And then Jonathan Rhys Myers doesn't see him coming up behind him and just says, "Oh, it's a black butterfly." And Antonio Banderas literally goes, "What?" And he says, "Oh, I had a den when I was in prison." But and starts telling the story, and it's like mm. he he didn't he didn't even ask. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't ask. And it's I not love it if Antonio Banderas just said, "I didn't actually ask," to be honest, mate. It's yeah. It's um, there's a bit in the film. I'm not going to do the Spanish accent, but there's an amazing delivery of a line where. Yeah, Jonathan Rhys Myers says to Antonio Banderas, "What are you thinking right now?" And he like loses his temper and speaks in really staccato bursts and just says, "And if you can imagine Antonio Banderas doing this, like really, really gesturing with his hands, says, the fact that I didn't tell you to get out on the first day is baffling to me." <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, and that that line has made me made me think I need to see more of Antonio Banderas in films. <laughs> um, so I'm going to watch the Almarashi trilogy. What? What? Come on. What? Um, so you should watch um, Antonio Banderas in the Pedro Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In. Uh, it's about 10 years old, but it's good. It's like a kind of psychological horror type thing where he plays like this surgeon whose um, expertise in, is in like um, skin Surgery. grafts. It, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just remember it being really good, quite funny in a way, but also really creepy. It's worth watching, definitely. And it's, you know, it's Pedro Amodovar, so he's he's been around for ages. So, um, but yeah, that's really good. So the it's skin a manufacturer of sherry, isn't it? What's that? It's a manufacturer of sherry. Oh, no, that's Pedro Jimenez. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, uh, I've got, what's the last one? The last one is The Colony. Right, yes, we're Canadian right? film starring Lawrence Fishburne and Bill Paxton. Good. Um, and it is about it's set in the far future, it's set after a global catastrophe, basically, um, some sort of climate emergency. The world is kind of swathed in this permanent blizzard, and humanity lives underground in these bunkers, um, where the common cold is the biggest killer, basically. And, um, and so anyone who's like ill in any way uh, is given like a couple of days to get better. Otherwise, they just they just get booted out into the cold yeah. and they just die. Otherwise, they can just scoot McNary. <laughs> um, yeah, so the colony gets a distress call from another colony relatively nearby. And so uh, Lawrence and a couple of guys head over there to see what's happened. Um, and when they get there, they find basically this kind of marauding tribe um who have just completely decimated the place and i I guess they're cannibals as well um and they go crazy and then they kind of follow them back to their colony um it's kind of an amalgamation of better films um so it's got it's quite a slow burn at first it's got almost got the first bit of alien where they kind of get the initial distress call Except that it's got the production design of Alien 3, so it's all very steamy and brown, frankly. Um, it's got the kind of wintry... <laughs> it's got the wintry setting of the thing, I suppose. And I guess there's a little hint of um, 
Oblivion, you know, the Tom Cruise movie, um, in the way that it's sort of a far future scenario type thing. Yeah. Um, even a dash, I felt, of Ghosts of Mars, to be honest. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, I said this amalgamation of better films. It's not as bad as Ghosts of Mars. But, um, and also, did you find of... it was a Souchon of Snowpiercer? <laughs> Maybe, yes, a little bit. <laughs> um, although it doesn't really have the political aspect of that film. Um, is it kind of video game references as well in there? In a really? Way. Yeah, I mean, well, the whole snowy aesthetic is it's very metro when they go outside because uh, it's such an intense blizzard and there's uh, obviously the remains of uh, human... Oh, blizzard technology. Entertainment, another game reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> wow. Um, and, yeah, there's some quite atmospheric kind of slow-burning scenes early on because the first 40 minutes or so are the best bit. And and of this quite slow-burning scenes of them, like, wandering around, like, deserted places with, like, mouldy, everyday crap on rusty tables, which is a bit like Fallout, so I was, I was happy with that. Um, Box ticked. Yeah, and I think if you go into the film knowing nothing, which I did not, because I just saw Lawrence Fishburne and Bill Paxton and clicked play, so um, there's there's no sense of what might have actually happened at the colony, and that's quite exciting in a way because you're like they're getting this distress call, they get there, and all you hear is like distant screams, and they see blood, and you're like, oh, you know, what could be happening here? It's I mean, an Irish wedding. <laughs> you're thinking it could be mutants, it could be monsters, it could be like some sort of Solaris-like mystery. Um, the reality is not as interesting as any of those things, unfortunately. It is just literally just a load of a load of dudes in face paint shouting um, and eating people. So, um, yeah, like there's one bit he even like asks for the bad guy's motivation, and the bad guy just shouts more at him, like growls the word more like i want more and he didn't actually stop him at that point and say yeah but more what exactly yeah but what roger demi dudley <laughs> what are we talking about <laughs> uh it's reasonably well directed and chilly and damp and atmospheric for the first part and it ten- does take some time to build its tension which is I good re- but as soon as it kicks off it just uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. I remember watching this. This is like 2011 or 10 or something. Yeah, 2013. Um, so, yeah. I remember watching it when it came out and um, probably on Love Film. And <laughs> I remember thinking, um, watching it and really enjoying because Bill Paxton is a good actor. Um, and, and I remember watching it and thinking, oh, yeah. this is quite cool. It's very, it's very sort of um, remote and quiet and foreboding. And then basically, when the second half, when it kicks off, it's like, Oh, it's really generic now. Yeah, and and, and like the action is really badly edited, and it's yeah, it's just snappy, quick editing. You can't see it. like something will scream and go past, and someone will get attacked, and then it'll wobble, and then people run off in different directions. You're like, I, I've got no sense of people's geography. I don't know what's happening. No, no. so yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, there don't there, there aren't many like inventive ideas when it comes to the the action. It's just people scrapping really, um, and and the hero guy. I mean, you've got Lawrence Fishburne, you've got Bill Paxton, but the hero guy, he does not have their gravitas. His name's Kevin Zegers. I looked him up. He's in a million things I will never see. He's in some things. Um, a million uh, things I will never see, which was Dream <laughs> Theater's last live album, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there are kind of generic character beats, like predictable kind of redemption moments. Um, 
there are enough vaguely exciting moments to keep the plot moving forward but it's just yeah when it degenerates into just people scrapping in the dark it's just boring <laughs> so yeah, i'd say overall it's kind of average really it's nice to see i mean lawrence and bill are as commanding commanding as ever but yeah it's not it's not all that so it's a tough it's a tough one because um just as you said that um obviously we've got to talk about the film the film of the week sort of thing um and what what are your feelings on that well i i was very pleasantly surprised by how good lionheart was and I, and i think that's the film out of all of them that i'd be most likely to watch yearly basically um <laughs> because because it was because it's so uh, wholesome and yeah, yeah. also has like the you know the good fight scenes and stuff so that was cool uh, but then also the five bloods is an is a very well made um and it feels like quite a I don't like using the word important, but it does feel like quite a, a relevant film for its time. So I yeah, definitely think that would be, the right word, yeah. yeah, I would definitely think that if I was going to watch one, if I was going to suggest that someone watch one film out of these, it would be to five bloods. But then I would also say, make sure you catch Lionheart before you die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lionheart was a timeless, timeless classic. And um, Gringo's worth a shot, but to five bloods would be my film of the week. But then again, Lionheart doesn't feature Van Damme being caught tugging in a tent by some kids, does it? By a river. So it'll never be the, it'll never be it'll never be hard target. Um, but I, I think for me that this, I, there were a few films you mentioned that I, I I may watch. But the one for me this week, I mean, I'm looking at mine. Hell comes to Frogtown, Strip to Kill, Lord of Illusions, Color of Night, The Last Witch Hunter, and Black Butterfly. Um, I would be tempted to say The Last Witch Under because I enjoy watching films that I've, I haven't watched in the past because they were just not even critically maligned. They just they were just nothing, if you know what I mean. It's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Why didn't I watch that? And it's and it's fun. But VFW, uh, Veterans of Foreign yes. Wars, because because it's so. Oh, my God. Have I got time to squeeze in one more film? Yeah, why not? I just realized. I've just realized that I forgot the whole it led on from VFW. That is my film of the week, by the way, because my point is it is great to see Stephen these Lang. old old it's always great to see Stephen Lang, who is a real he's got a voice, that man. He has got like this real command and extreme presence. And but Fred Williamson's eighty two and like I said, everyone's a bit older. It's great to see these these old veteran actors. And and they're not they don't rock up and you're like, oh wicked is Bill Duke for five minutes. It's like the film is on them. You know this this their yeah. film, and and I and I really really love that as someone who came grew up watching their films. I watched Twilight, um, not that one, with one with Paul Newman, James Garner, Susan Sarandon, and Lee Schreiber and Reese Witherspoon from 1998. Bloody hell! Does this ring a bell? Um, can't no, not really. Again, it, I'll do this relatively quickly because I realize we're dragging on, but this really ties on nicely from VFW, my film of the week, because it's a celebration of older actors. So the, the film is Paul Newman was, was just like a, like a cop sort of thing, and then he was like a private detective, and he goes off to get um, Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon's daughter, Reese Witherspoon, like Leif Schreiber's taken her away, and they're just like frolicking around in Florida in some hotel. 
and he he says just bring her back home sort of thing she's like 17 18 and he gets shot in the leg and and then it cuts to a few years later and he's kind of living with a family so like mm. Paul Newman's there and he's just kind of helps her. he's like a handyman sort of thing and Gene Hackman and Susan Sarandon are kind of over the hill actors uh, so they they they're very wealthy Gene Hackman's like very seriously ill. Susan Sarandon is kind of bored, like she's kind of misses her youth and and you know the sort of majesty and everything that came with it. And and Paul Newman is just kind of helping around the house, sort of thing. Um, and it's a really quiet film. It's it's like an I'd say it's like a noir. Um, but it was really pleasant to watch because half the first half of the film is kind of almost like a not cartoonish but kind of really light-hearted a lot a lot of dialogue um really nice set in the daytime and as the film goes on and the, and the plot thickens because what happens is they this her Susan Sarandon's first husband basically went missing 20 years ago and the plot is like did did they did he did they plan to have him killed or right. what happened to him so all these all these things it's one of those kind of a lot of plot threads come together um, and as the film goes on, it gets more and more filmed at night. And it was really nice to see Paul Newman, like all these actors, like uh, Gene Hackman probably made, what, Heartbreakers and, you know, only Enemy of the State, only a couple more films after this before he sort of stopped in like 2003-ish. Susan Sarandon is, are the only things I've seen her in the last like 10, 15 years are kind of cheap thrillers. Paul Newman's, you know, granary bread, sadly. Um, mm. And then it, and it, it was really nice to just, see these and the film is very much about actors in the twilight of the twilight of their career and it, it kind of does it in a sort of um a slightly nostalgic way um and james garner plays a really nice part in it and i was watching it and Faye was asleep and it was quite late and and i and it was really kind of it's a pretty gentle noirish thriller you know it's not it's not heavy duty by any means and i was watching i just thought i'm really enjoying this because it's just nice to see these people and it's a shame that a lot of them aren't around anymore so it was a it was a decent a decent watch um but it was very light-hearted really where did you see it on amazon prime okay and it's definitely worth a watch there's a really sad there's a really sad scene with gene hackman who's i think he's got cancer and he's obviously on his last leg sort of thing and he puts on a he sits down with Paul Newman and watches one of his old shows from the fifties. And he's just and it's actually Gene Hackman in the show they're watching. And he's and because he's wow. such he's such a good actor. He's just watching it. And Paul Newman like walks out the room and Gene Hackman's like watching it, smiling with his like com- with his mouth open, like completely lost in in those times. And that happens a few times in the film and it yeah, it's just it's really melancholy, but quite quite a nice film. Good. Yeah. That sounds good. So yeah, there's a few that, that I've added to my watch list. Oh really? Nice. I've been intrigued to see what you think about that. It was mm. uh, so obviously, yeah. I'm definitely going to be. Is it so? Joel Schumacher has died. That died definitely... eighty years old. Died today. Oh, that's, that is sad. But you know, I mean, I didn't realize he was actually so old. Um, good. Yes, I'm definitely going to watch a few of his movies. I, I may have to watch Flatliners again. I'm just saying. But... <laughs> What about the remake? I have seen that actually, and it's not as good. Is it? it I mean, I'm going to say something now. It's an old Persian saying. Crap. <laughs> uh, it's just really generic. 
It's that's just, the problem, isn't it? That's the pro- it generic just, is worse. And crap. yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not really against remakes as such. I think it's okay. It's fine. It doesn't spoil the original. Uh, it it may even draw a new audience to the better original. I look uh, at so woke up with Joel Kinnaman, whom I fancy. Well, exactly. So it's like it doesn't it's it doesn't do any any harm. But um, so yeah, it's just a bit pointless, really. Like Flatliners isn't really old enough. Uh, or out of time enough that you'd think, oh, it needs to be, you know, I need to watch an updated version because there's nothing particularly dated about it other than yeah, the hair. Flat the li- hair. Flat, Flatliners is 1990 as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it holds up pretty well. But yeah, I'll, I will confirm next time. <laughs> right then. So, right. yeah, sorry for squeezing, sorry so long and sorry for squeezing in uh, Twilight at the end there. But yeah, that's a good film. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, wicked. Well, good. P- probably, <laughs> yeah. We have gone on quite a long time, but yeah, it was totally worth it. So uh, yeah, until the next time, I guess. Yeah, I'll end with "I love you." I love you back. <laughs>